Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning, when we looked at Genesis 3, especially verse 15, we were reminded of this great conflict which God graciously put into the, the fallen world, this profound dichotomy or division in the human race. And it was a gracious act to make sure that the whole human race didn't stay on Satan's side, but there would always be a holy seed. There would always be those, no matter how weak and how sinful and how fallen, there would always be those who were on the Lord's side, who were the Lord's people. So there was the holy offspring and there was the offspring of the serpent. There was God's side and the devil's side. There was the church and the world. Which side do our children belong to? When a believer, when two believers have a little baby, which side is that little baby on? Does the little baby belong to the world or to the church? Does the little baby belong to the devil or to God? Which side are they on? Well, the Bible gives us the answer all through the scriptures. The Bible tells us that children of believers, both in the Old and the New Testament, belong to the Lord. They belong to the Lord's people. They are children of the promise. In fact, Paul says to the Corinthians, even if only one parent is a believer, the children are holy. They are set apart to God. They belong. And all through the scriptures, God reveals himself to us as a God who works through families, through generational lines. If you turn in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 5, which is the second time that we have the Ten Commandments. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, specifically in the second commandment, Verse 9, he says, I am the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And then verse 10, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You see that there in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 10, thousands of of those thousands of, of what thousands of people well look at Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 9 let's flip the page a little bit further on Deuteronomy 7 verse 9 see what the Holy Spirit tells us there Deuteronomy 7 9 know therefore that the Lord your God is God the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So the word's not in there in the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5, but the word is definitely understood. Not just thousands of people, but thousands of generations. God works through the generations. God works through family lines. Not a coincidence that when we get from Genesis 3 and then we get a little bit later on to the, to, the, to the flood and all of 
humanity is destroyed and only one man and his children and their wives are, are saved, it's not a coincidence that Noah is from the line of Seth. He's not from the line of Cain. He's not from the line of the people that have arrayed themselves on the devil's side and are serving him. But the one who is saved, together with his children and his daughters-in-law, is the one who is from the holy line, the line of God's people, the holy offspring, not the offspring of the serpent. And that, those lines go right through the scriptures. And over and over again, the Bible reveals to us in many ways and in many places that children of believers belong to God's covenant and congregation, and therefore they must receive the sign of belonging. Now, there are a lot of very sincere Christians that have sincere difficulties with this. Sometimes, I don't know if it's common here in Canada, but in Brazil, sometimes Reformed and Presbyterians, they joke around about our Baptist cousins. And the Baptists do the same thing back to the Reformed because there's a significant difference of opinion about the sacrament of baptism with respect to little children. And so sometimes people are a little bit slow to recognize each other as brothers in Christ because of this important difference. Brothers and sisters, it is important that children receive baptism, they receive the sacrament. But we have to understand that the Bible speaks very clearly that those who know themselves to be sinners, that believe in their hearts that Jesus is Lord and confess that with their mouths, they are saved. They are our brothers and our sisters. Doesn't mean to say that all the church differences and the theological differences and all the confessional differences are unimportant. We can just forget about them. That's not true. They are important. We need to deal with them. But at the same time, when the Holy Spirit is working in the life of somebody else and has caused faith, repentance, and regeneration to be happening in that heart, then we need to recognize the work of the Spirit and recognize who are our brothers and our sisters. All the more as the world becomes darker and darker and more and more hostile against anything that even looks Christian. And a great brother of ours in the faith, the great prince of preachers, uh, Spurgeon, he had problems. Being a Baptist, he had problems with infant baptism. He said, you know, where there's infant baptism, then baptismal regeneration is not far behind. He was concerned about baptizing babies because he thought this. He thought, you know, if you baptize babies, before you know it, you're back with Rome. Before you know it, you're thinking that the water, you just splash it on the baby, and it's automatic. The baby is saved. The water saves babies. And he didn't want to go there for a very good reason. Because baptismal regeneration, the idea that water put on a baby's head saves the baby, is not what the Bible teaches. At the Metropolitan Tabernacle, during Spurgeon's ministry there, over the course of many years, one of the preachers said this once, we can only regard infant baptism as the main root of the superstitious and destructive dogma of baptismal 
regeneration. And a lot of very sincere and believing Baptist Christians rail against the idea that baptism regenerates babies, that the sacrament automatically communicates what it signifies and seals. And in that concern, we're with them. We agree. Look at what we confess in the, in the laws here. It's, it's no coincidence that before getting to question and answer 74, this question and answer 72 and 73, they're kind of repetitive. These things have basically been said before in the last Lord's Day, but the church wants to make it very, very clear. When we baptize babies, we are not saying that water automatically saves little children. That's not what we're saying. So the catechism hundreds of years before Spurgeon already anticipates this objection. And beginning the Lord's Day, the catechism says, let's get one thing straight. We do not believe in or accept baptismal regeneration. The sacrament doesn't save. Jesus Christ saves. The sacrament baptism doesn't wash away sins. The blood of Christ washes away sins. Well, if that's the case, then why does the Bible keep using sacramental language? Why does the scripture keep speaking about the sign as if it is the thing signified? And in question answer 73, we respond again to that. God talks about baptism as if it is the very reality which it represents because God wants to drive home to us how real and how trustworthy his promises are. You're baptized. You carry that baptism on your forehead every moment of every day and every moment of every day. The Holy Spirit wants to remind you that water cleans away filth and that the blood of Jesus Christ washes away sin. And because we sin every day, every day we need to run back to the truth which our baptism is preaching into our lives. We're carrying the gospel right here on our bodies. And the gospel keeps saying, you're filthy. You're dirty. Go get washed. Go to Jesus. Go to his blood. There's always forgiveness. It's real. Like a, a husband or a wife having troubles in marriage and there are difficulties because that's what happens in this broken world. There are problems. Things don't work. But when they look at their wedding ring, they say, I'm married. This means something. Vows have been made. Promises have been made. And they need to be kept. They need to be believed in. But baptism isn't just telling us that it's real that Christ's blood washes away sin. Even more importantly, baptism is reminding us that it's real for us. It's not just some general truth that sinners get to be washed in Jesus' blood. It's true for you. Your baptism tells you, it preaches into your life. It says, you are washed. When the devil takes all your sins and rubs them in your face, he says, you rotten sinner. 
Why are you even bothering showing up at church? Why are you bothering to pray? Why are you bothering to read the Bible? I know what you've done. I know what you're doing. I know who you are. You're worthless. You're a sinner. Why does God even want to look at you? Why does God even want to have you in his presence? So that the devil does. And often he gets pretty far with these lies. Because they're kind of half-truths. But then we look at our baptism and we say, get behind me, Satan. My baptism tells me that I am washed. I can believe it. Baptism tells me that I am clean. I can believe it because Jesus promises it to me. He sealed it to me. It's like a a woman who is very, very poor and in in debt. And a rich prince comes and says to her, I love you. I'm going to marry you. Here, take my wedding ring. We're married. I'm going to pay all your debts. And now all of my riches you participate in. And the wedding celebration is set for this date. And here's my pledge. Here's my troth. Take the ring, put it on your finger. And he goes off to prepare the wedding. And sometimes as she waits for that wedding, the, the woman can think, is, is this really happening to me? Are all my debts really paid? Am I really participating in all the wealth of this great prince? Is he really marrying me? And as she's beset by doubts, what does she do? She looks at the sign. She says, oh, yes, I'm married. It's right here. It's on my finger. And we know very well that the, the wedding band, the wedding ring, has no inherent power. If you're single and you really want to get married, it doesn't help, as we've said before, to go to a store and buy a wedding ring. That won't magically make you married. Or if you happen to drop your wedding ring down an elevator shaft, it doesn't make you unmarried. If you happen to drop it by mistake. But nevertheless, it's a sign which means something. Well, where did the babies come in? What about the babies? Spurgeon once preached a famous sermon on Mark chapter 16, verse 15. He said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And the logic was very simple. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Infants cannot believe. Therefore, they shouldn't be baptized. Baptism is a public declaration of a person's faith in God. An infant can't, can't, cannot stand up here and, and, and publicly declare that they have faith in God. Therefore, an infant should not be baptized. Now, here's the problem. When we talk to our Baptist brothers and sisters who are true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and have a sincere difference of understanding about this important matter, when we speak to them, we shouldn't discuss who should get baptized. That's a red herring. Because they'll say, only adults. And we'll say, adults and children. And we'll go back and forth and back and forth. It's not about the subject of baptism. It's not about who. This is the discussion we need to have. What does baptism mean? 
Who is saying something in baptism? You see, for a lot of believers, in baptism, man is making a declaration. He is avowing before the church that he or she loves God and will follow God. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God is speaking in baptism. He is declaring something. It is a declaration of a sovereign God. In baptism, God is sovereignly sovereignly signing and sealing his covenant promises. And that makes all the difference. If baptism is a profession of faith, then we've got to stop baptizing our babies. But if baptism is God saying something, then let's bring the babies to the front. And let's rejoice in what God says to them and about them, what he promises to them. Now, the objection can still be raised. Well, sacraments need faith. They can't just be done automatically. They they need to be done with faith. And, and, And how do we know the baby has faith? Okay, let's go there. Romans 4 verse 3. Romans 4 verse 3. How did Abraham get saved? Romans 4, 3, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So the apostle in chapter 4 here is saying, listen, Abraham didn't work really hard. And then God said, oh, you are working so hard. You're such a good person. Therefore, because you have worked hard, I consider you righteous. No, Abraham just believed. He believed. And righteousness was imputed to him. So we have faith, we have imputed righteousness, we have justification by grace alone through faith alone. Well, what about the sign? Let's have a look at verse 11 of chapter 4. Still talking about Abraham here, Paul says he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by By faith. So Abraham believes he's righteous because God graciously imputes that righteousness to him because he believes. And then Abraham gets a sign. He gets a sacramental sign. He gets a covenant sign. It's circumcision. And what does that sign say? What does it seal? What does it declare? It declares that when you have faith in God and his promises, then God imputes righteousness to you. It's not by works, it's by faith. Okay. So, Abraham is justified not by works, but by faith. He believed. And circumcision says, says, yep, let's stamp that right in your body. When you believe, you're justified. You're righteous. Circumcision signed and sealed that righteousness comes by faith. And then what does God do? If you go back to the Old Testament, what does God do right after that? He says, Abraham, okay, circumcision says that righteousness is by faith. So Abraham, go circumcise all the little babies. Go circumcise all the little boys. Let them all carry the mark which says, believe in God's promises and you are righteous. 
So circumcise those little babies that can't express their faith at all because they're too little and put that same mark on them. You see, it's exactly the same thing in the New Testament. Baptism, like circumcision, declares that righteousness is not a thing you work for. It's not a thing that you earn. It's not a thing that you inherit by birth. It comes by faith. It's a seal and a sign of the righteousness that comes by faith. And so, just like with circumcision, so with baptism, God says, baptize all the little babies. Let them carry the mark which says, believe in God's promises and you are righteous. You know, a lot of people think that in the Old Testament, the covenant is physical descent. You just have to be born from a Jew, and then you're in the covenant. And in the New Testament, the big difference is that it's now, it's got nothing to do with physical descent. It's got everything to do with faith. Well, it's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that in the Old Testament, the covenant, the church, God's people, was only for Jewish believers and their children. Unbelievers had no place in the congregation. They could not stand in the assembly of the righteous. Look at Psalm 1. They were supposed to be either put to death or or exiled from the promised land. Jewish believers and their children in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, the difference is that it's not restricted to ethnic Jews, but believers can be from any ethnicity, from any nation, believers and their children. So in the Old Testament, it's believers and their children. In the New Testament, it's believers and their children. Because in the Old Testament, circumcision was not just about physical descent. God kept telling the people, listen, I don't care that you're uh, you're circumcised in the flesh only. I want you to be circumcised in your hearts. I want it to be something real. And Paul says to the, to the, in the book of Romans, he says in chapter 9, he says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So Isaac was the holy line. Isaac was the line of faith. Isaac was the line of promise, and Ishmael not. It wasn't just physical descent. It had everything to do with faith and with promises. God works in the line of believers and their children. He did that in the Old Testament. He does it in the New Testament. And children of the promise need to be marked with a sign that they belong to God. Now, we read from Acts chapter 2 at the beginning, just before the sermon. And there's a reason for that. Because in Acts chapter 2, Peter is declaring that God is keeping a promise he made a long time ago in the time of Joel, in the prophecy of Joel. And that promise, says Peter, is being fulfilled today. And that promise, he says, is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, even as many as the Lord will call to himself. So what's going on here? Well, in Acts chapter 2, Peter is declaring that redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit who works faith are promised to children, not just to adults. The promise is to you and to your children, he says. Now, what promise is that? Well, 
to figure out what the promise is, we need to go back to the Old Testament, and we need to go to the prophecy of Joel, Joel chapter 2. And if you turn there, we'll go very, very quickly through this chapter. It'll be easier if you can see it in front of you. Joel chapter 2. What's happening in Joel chapter 2? Well, there's a lot of judgment happening in the first 11 verses. God's people have been once again disobedient, so God blows it, says, blow a trumpet, sound an alarm, let the people tremble because God is coming to judge. He will send a great judgment. Uh, foreign nations will come and they will overrun God's people as a punishment for their unbelief. Then we get to, to uh, a little later, verses 12 through to 14 in this chapter, and God says, listen, I'm going to punish you, but, but even now, I'm calling on you to repent. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Not just outward, but inward and real repentance. And then we get to verse 15. This is where we really need to pay attention. Because God says, listen, I want to call the congregation together. Now notice how he does it. Verse 15 of chapter 2 of Joel. Blow the trumpet at Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly. This is a church of us. Gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children. Even, you see it there? Nursing infants. The Holy Spirit is making a point here that even the little babies have to be there because God's going to say something also for those babies. God's going to make a promise, not just for the big people, but for everybody who belongs to the congregation. And the Holy Spirit puts it right in there, even the nursing infants. And then what happens? Well, the next verses up to verse 27 God makes promises for the short and medium term. He says, listen, you've been overrun by foreign powers and you're kind of being punished because of your unbelief and unfaithfulness. I'll get rid of those foreign powers. I'll get rid of the famines and I'll make things better for you. That's the first part. And then in verse 28, he looks to the long term. Verse 28, and it shall come to pass afterward, or another translation, and it shall come to pass in the latter days that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And look at verse 32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What's God promising to the whole congregation, including the little babies? What's he promising? He's saying, listen, one day I'm going to do something so amazing that I'm just going to pour out my spirit in amazing measure on my whole people. And then I'm going to save them. And you know who gets promised the Holy Spirit and salvation? You know who gets that promise? Not just the big people, but also the little children and also the nursing babies. They were right there. God made a point of saying it. And the promise is for them too. The babies belong. And that's why when Peter, back in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is, 
is quoting this chapter and this prophecy, he reminds the Jews, he says, listen, have you read Joel chapter 2? Remember what it says there? The promise is to you and your children. So let's go back to Acts chapter 2 for a second. When they respond to his preaching, they say, well, what do we do now? And in verse 38, Peter says to them, repent and be baptized. Now, what's very interesting is that the grammar here makes it very clear that repent and believe is directed to people that can repent and believe. But suddenly the grammar changes. And the be baptized, the way it's put there in the original language, it just means, and let each one here be baptized. I won't bore you with all the details, but this is the fact. This is the summation of it. That if any of the believers there had children with them, the way the grammar of this verse works, they're included in that command to be baptized. Now, we sometimes struggle with this. We say, well, Okay, so children receive the, the promise, they receive baptism, but then how do we know if they're going to respond in faith? And, 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 and what if they turn away from the Lord? And should we really do this? You know what the Lord says to us in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29? This is a key verse which we need to have in our heads. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So we cannot come to the scriptures, we cannot come to our children as we raise them in the fear of the Lord from the direction of the eternal decrees and try and figure out, well, who's elect and who's not elect? There's no secret mark behind the ear that we can kind of check and see who's in, who's out. We don't know election. That's with God. But we know covenant. And covenant happens in time and in space. And God uses the covenant to work out his eternal purposes. And so we need to look at our children not based on what we think might be or might not be their status in the eternal decrees which are hidden in God. But we need to look at our children as God, as in, in light of what God has revealed about them to us. And when we see our kids, what do we see? Well, we see that God has given them to us. He, they're not born in a family of unbelievers. They're born to believers. We see that God normally works in all of history through the generations. We see that God has placed our children in a family where they are brought up in the fear of the Lord. We see that God has put our children under the preaching of the word. We see that even before they can speak one word, God speaks love to them. And he seals it on their foreheads. And he says to our little babies, I will be your God. I promise you forgiveness of sins and my Holy Spirit. That's all part of God's call. It's all part of God calling out children out of darkness and into light. It's all part of what God's work is in their lives. This is glorious grace. And these are precious promises that our children belong. They are sons. They are daughters of the kingdom. And they bear the name of the holy and triune God. They belong. You know, we've got to be really careful that we don't twist this and misuse these beautiful truths. 
Remember what the Catechism teaches us? Sacraments focus our faith on Christ. Faithless forms don't save. Doing things out of custom and superstition don't save. They bring judgment. That's why every time parents come to the front here and bring a little baby, the minister asks, don't do this out of custom and superstition. Turn to Matthew chapter 8 for a moment. Matthew chapter 8 verse 10. Jesus sees a foreigner who has more faith than a lot of Jews that he knows, a lot of Israelites. And so in Matthew chapter 8, verse 10, he says, When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place that will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What in the world is Jesus saying that sons of the kingdom will be in the outer darkness? What does that mean? Well, this is what it means. It means that you can be in covenant with the Lord Jesus, with God. It means that you can bear the mark. You can carry the name. It means that you can have the precious promises of the forgiveness of sins in the Holy Spirit. But it means that you can spurn and despise and you can trample under your feet the blood of the covenant by which you were sanctified. And you know where that brings you? It brings you into eternal darkness. And so it doesn't matter how old you are. But if you're just kind of wandering along and kind of just showing up from time to time, but you're not committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and you don't believe in Him and you don't live a life of repentance and faith, then all the baptism in the world is not going to save you. In fact, it's going to judge you. It's going to condemn you because to whom much has been given, much will be required. There's nothing automatic about this. We don't just toss some water in our babies and say, okay, you go to sleep now, we'll wake you up when you get to heaven. It's not the way it works. God calls us to respond in repentance and belief, to, to believe in the promises, to embrace the promises, to love the promiser. That's why, how does our baptism form start? Our baptism form starts making it very clear that we agree with our beloved brother Spurgeon about the wickedness of the idea of baptismal regeneration. This is how it starts. First, we and our children are conceived and born in sin and are therefore by nature children of wrath so that we cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we are born again. This is what the immersion in or sprinkling with water teaches us. It signifies the impurity of our soul so that we may detest ourselves, humble ourselves before God and seek our cleansing and salvation outside of ourselves, outside of our baptism, outside of our status. Seek our cleansing and salvation in the reality signified. In the blood of the Lord Jesus. That's what we need to be teaching to our children, brothers and sisters. Together with them, we need to delight in these precious promises. 
We need to, to delight in the fact that our babies belong to God's covenant and congregation. But what does that look like? What does that delight look like? Well, it looks like this. It looks like prayer. It looks like fervent prayer. It looks like daily, constant prayer. Oh God, oh Holy Spirit, work in the heart of my little child. Work regeneration and work faith. Work love for the Lord Jesus. Oh Lord Jesus, teach my child to know you more and more, to love you more and more, to serve you more and more. Help me to teach my children, O oh God, in the, in the fear of your holy name, in your ways. Help me, O oh Lord, to teach them the word of the Lord. And when our children sin, and when they do things which de- displease the King of Kings, then we don't react and respond with legalism, saying, oh, you shouldn't do that or you can't get to heaven. That's not what we say. But we respond by teaching them their status in Christ. We say, you are baptized. You carry the name. And what you have done, that lie you have told, that thing you have stolen, that duty in which you have been negligent, you have brought shame upon the king of kings whose son, whose daughter you are. God says, you are his royal child. Be what you are. Live as a son, as a daughter of the king, not like some flunky slave that's crawling around and listening to every temptation of the prince of darkness. That's not who you are. But how can our children live like sons and daughters of the king? Unless God works the miracle of regeneration and faith in their hearts. And that's why believers make a big deal about bringing their children into worship. Into the workshop of the Holy Spirit. Where the word is preached. Where the Holy Spirit is present. And that's why we pray for our children to have a response of faith for the power of the Spirit, to embrace the promises, to embrace the gospel, to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, to know Him, to love Him, to serve Him, and to confess together with mom and dad and with all the congregation of God's people, I am not my own, but I belong. I belong, body and soul, life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.